Good morning. Good to see everyone. How's November treating you so far? Everything, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a nice warm one today. Yeah? No? Should we just close in prayer? Y'all feel like maybe you've had enough church already today? I don't know. But no, it is good to see everybody. If you're a guest, let me uh, welcome you as well. My name is Ryan. I'd love to meet you. Love to say hi. I'll be at the Meet and Mingle hanging out. And uh, if you'd like to, you know, spend a little bit more time together, I'd love to have coffee with you or a drink, whatever is your choice. I don't really care. And uh, just send me a text message, and my phone number's right there in your program, and you can check that out. Hey, speaking of the program, if you'll notice, the cover of the program is our very own Zach, who yesterday won the state championship for the Special Olympics football, his football team. The, it, it was the Fort Collins. What's the name of the team, Zach? The Crimson Tide. I knew that I was, it was Alabama-oriented. I couldn't remember it. So. so the good news is you've got a program there, and uh, Zach is willing to sign autographs today uh, on the cover of that. So it's $10, uh, and that'll help their team next year. So uh, make sure you stop by for your autograph. <laughs> Just got to find him. He's a popular guy. He had a lot of fans there yesterday, so it was a great day. But, uh, and if you have, I want to say, if you have a nomination for the program cover, something going on, one of your kiddos or one of your friends that's doing something fantastic, that's just being an everyday normal peacemaker, send that over, because we love to put that on the cover of the program. It's way more exciting than, you know, something we're doing. It's way more exciting than the ice cream social, you know, which you should come to, but we'd love to put that, uh, something that you got going on in your everyday normal life on that cover. So we are wrapping up our series, TED Talks, the book of Lasso. If you're a guest today, I will get to the Bible, okay? So that's especially important to those of you that are coming from a, another church. Maybe you moved into town. Some of you are like, no, please don't talk about the Bible. I've had enough of that in my life. Well, we'll talk about other things too, but that's okay. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be a lot of fun. Not either way. So thanks for being here. We've kind of gone through this series, and what we're doing is kind of exploring big themes um, from our tradition, the Christian tradition, a way of experiencing the divine as understood by this person of Jesus, and its intersection with some of these great characters in the show. And if you haven't seen the show, don't worry about it. It's not a prerequisite. We try and give you a little bit of heads up, all right? So let me ask you a question to get us started. I always like to ask a little bit of a question to enroll you in the topic a little bit. Where do you go when you don't know where to go? Where do you go when you don't know where to go? Have you ever had that emotional experience, right? That moment in life where you just aren't sure where to turn. You aren't sure where to go next. Where do you go? Maybe think of the question this way. Who do you turn to when you feel? I don't know what you feel, but we feel, right? I mean, we have these moments in our lives where we feel. And when we experience that, it is almost as if we want to explode. And we've got so much feeling going on, we don't know where to turn. We don't know where to go. We don't even, we're not even sure what we're feeling. We're not even sure whether we should be feeling it. You ever had that moment? Like, should I be feeling this? I, I know, like, I have this tendency to celebrate the failures of others. Oh, don't act like you don't do this in your line of work. Give me a break. I'm just honest enough to say it out loud. Right? Like if I hear a story of a, you know, of something that like I want to be better at than somebody else, let's say, or 
whatever. That's in me. I start to get excited when I find out somebody else is struggling in an area that I want to be good at, right? But I have to get on the phone. I got to call somebody and I got to just say that out loud. Otherwise, it just gets too much power in my life, right? Because feelings are tricky. Feelings are tricky. How many of y'all feel like you got the feelings thing down? No worries about it. Whatever feeling comes your way, you can handle it. Anybody in the room? Okay, good. Then it's good you're here because that's what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about feelings. And feelings are tricky, and we experience a range of them. Anger, love, fear, shame. I don't know if anybody's ever felt that growing up in church. Happiness. We experience sadness, embarrassment, disgust, anxiety. I mean, a range of feelings. And they're powerful. Feelings are very, very powerful. They actually set a course for us, right? We can, we can identify a feeling and we can know what kind of day we're going to have, right? They can set a course and they, they send us in a certain direction. And my question for us is, what are feelings grounded in, right? Where, where do they come from? Maybe you've heard somebody say to you, uh, don't trust your feelings. Anybody ever heard something to that effect? Don't trust your feelings. The kind of like churchy way of saying that is like the heart is ever deceitful. Don't ever listen to it. And so we're like told not to trust ourselves. And in my humble opinion, that's quite a misuse of that passage in scripture that can control and manipulate people to not arguing with those that are in charge. Okay. But that's not what that passage is about. But you know, we'd have those feelings like, well, don't trust your feelings, right? Or maybe you've heard this phrase. It's one of my favorite. Feelings aren't facts. What are you going to say to that? Right? And that's usually said in the context of like, well, it feels like the Democrats are wrong. It feels like the Republicans are wrong. It feels like the independents don't have a clue that they're wasting their vote. And, and so people will say, well, feelings aren't facts, right? Or it feels like a lot of people are getting, it feels like, right? And there is a space for that, but the kind of truth is I think our feelings are facts. I think our feelings are facts, like the things that we go through. What's interesting is I was learning that our feelings are actually mental interpretations of our emotions. Now, that's a little confusing, right? Because some of us think feelings and emotions are the same things, right? But according to a Psychology Today article uh, titled The Important Difference Between Emotions and Feelings, despite the fact that we use these words interchangeably, right? They're actually two different but connected phenomena in our life. Emotions actually originate as sensations in the body, the article says. So we physically feel something, a racing of the heart. We feel tears flowing down our cheeks, right? There's butterflies in our stomachs. And these feelings are in, and then our feelings are influenced by those emotions, right? The emotional bodily uh, experience. And the feelings are generated then from our mental thoughts, right? So there's a mental process that goes through where we interpret the emotion that we're experiencing, a racing of the heart, the butterflies in the stomach, whatever it might be. So here's a great example, right? How many of you are party people? You love to go to parties. Who in the house is that extrovert? Like you get invited to a party and you are there. Raise your hand nice and I own it. I know you like to raise your hand in church. You're the same people. Okay, good. <laughs> the rest of us are like, Ryan, if you ever ask me to raise my hand again in church, I'm never giving in the offering again. Okay. Listen, I I'm not a party person. You invite me to a party. I'm looking for every reason not to go. It's just, not, it's just not my jam, okay? It has nothing to do with you. It's my fault, right? This isn't going to work out. It's me, not you, okay? But there are some people that love going to parties, right? So here's the same experience. Like two people go into a party, right? And inside of that party, all of a sudden, they start to have like stomach clenching, like discomfort. 
and like they can feel their temperature rising and their breathing gets constricted, right? And your mind goes, okay, what am I experiencing? And you label that like I do as awkward. I'm just an awkward person. Everybody here is normal. That's not me. I don't want to be here. And then it's like, oh no, there's my ex, right? And we're freaking out and we don't want to be there. So we interpret those emotions that we experience and we call it awkwardness, right? Or uncomfortable. Yet, those of you that are party people in the room, you can have the same experience and you walk in, there's a room full of people and you're like, your stomach gets a going and you're like, see your ex over there and you're like, yeah, this is the time where I get to show them. And like, it's just a totally different feeling of exhilaration, right? You just experience it differently, but you have the same emotional response. I think if I was hiking with uh, one of our drummers, uh, Mike Perez, and Mike is a, a really great hiker and he loves heights. I'm a terrible hiker and I hate heights. So we get to the top, right? And he's like walking up to the edge. And he's like, take my, take my picture. <laughs> and of course, I'm like 20 feet from the edge. Like, okay, I gotcha. I'm like, I need three points of contact here, Mike. I'm over six feet and there's wind. Relax, all right? So Mike gets up to that edge and he feels this sense of exhilaration. Right, his heart is racing, the blood is pumping, he's like, he's like a little off kilter because of the wind, and it's just like this adrenaline dump in his, he loves it. And he said to me one time, and he was like, I realized that that experience for other people is called fear. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> I, I choose to think of it as brilliance too. Like, let's not go to the edge, the view is the same here, right? Now, emotional intelligence, or EQ, is what we call that ability to rightly discern our emotions and then label it with the right feeling and to do that in a positive way. How many of you ever heard that phrase, emotional intelligence, or your EQ, right? Very, very important. In fact, a lot of workplaces would say to you, well, your EQ is actually more important than your IQ. Thank God for people like me. But our ability to interpret the emotions that we're experiencing and translate those into the proper feelings, right? According to helpguy.org, which is an independent nonprofit that runs one of the world's leading mental health websites, they say that our EQ, our emotional quotient or our emotional intelligence affects our lives in like five key areas. The first is our performance at school or work, right? Our ability to discern and navigate the social complexities of those environments, right? And then our physical health. If we can't manage our emotions and label them correctly, uh, we're not going to be able to manage stress very well. And that stress produces high blood pressure, a lowered immune system, higher risk of heart attack or stroke. Our mental health is affected by our ability to navigate our emotions and our feelings in right ways, right? Uh, we become more vulnerable to things like anxiety or depression if we're not able to identify that emotion and label it correctly and find a path forward. Our relationships are affected. If you've ever like, had a friend or been in a relationship with someone who really is not in touch with their emotions, in touch with their feelings, say, say, say you knew uh, somebody who was male at some point in your life, right? Anecdotally, this is an area that uh, many men tend to struggle with, right? And that's not to say that women and non-binary people don't as well, but like we just see this, this culturally, especially in certain cultures within our environments that like not allowed to be in touch with those things, right? And it affects our relationships. And then finally, our social intelligence, right? Being able to just in general be in tune with our emotions allows us to be more in tune with the world around us right? To know what's going on. Are other people feeling the same way I am? 
So our emotions then, right, that physical bodily response to an experience that we're having, it's giving data to our mind. And then our emotional intelligence kicks in and interprets that and labels it as feelings, right? And here's what I would suggest. Without a growing emotional intelligence, our emotions will have a tendency to blind us rather than guide us. See, I think our emotions can guide us. When I was, um, I, I, some of you may know this, you may not know this, you know, we can talk about it later, but I spent a huge part of my life studying martial arts, karate. I know, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> and uh, for, my, uh, for, the, for my first degree black belt, we had to read a book uh, called, what was it called? The, uh, the Gift of Fear. The Gift of Fear uh, by a guy named Gavin De Becker was his name, is his name. And uh, the idea behind this book, The Gift of Fear, is that most of us, if we would just listen to that emotional response to this fear, we'd be a lot safer, right? When you walk in and there's something inside of you that experiences, don't go down that alley. <laughs> like, don't go in that store. There's like this intuitive kind of reality. There's this gift of fear. But a lot of times we, all, we dismiss it. And all kinds of research was done around like violent, violent crimes and people who were victims of violent crimes. And, and in so many cases, they knew there was something inside of me that said, don't go there tonight. Don't go in that store. Don't go down that street. Don't talk to that person. Yet we irrationalized it, right? We just said, oh, that's irrational. I have no reason not to think that, right? And so this idea of, of not being able to navigate those things can, can actually, we can stop using them as a guide in our lives. And they just kind of blind us. You know the phrase, like they're just blind with rage, right? Well, we can be blinded by all kinds of things. And when we experience a range of emotions, right, our, our EQ, our ability to navigate those, to settle ourselves, right, to not get overwhelmed, to sort through them alone is super important, but can become very, very difficult when we get overwhelmed by the emotion that we're feeling, when we get overwhelmed with the racing heart, the sweats, the, the, the elevated, um, the elevated uh, blood pressure, the, all those things can, can factor in. And so when we become blinded, we become overwhelmed. Now in episode eight of this beautiful series, this story, I like to call it a story this, of Ted Lasso, right? There's, a, there's an episode called The Diamond Dogs. That's what my shirt is. And my shirt was, this was given to me by one of you all, one of you beautiful people, but you gave me an extra, extra large. And I questioned how much weight does the camera add? <laughs> but I did try to shrink it, and I am wearing a sweatshirt underneath it, and I'm a little warm, okay? So hang in there with me, right? But episode eight is titled Diamond Dogs, and I've got this Diamond Dog shirt, and I've been holding it in the closet for four weeks waiting for this moment, right? And this episode, episode eight, is, is it's brilliant because it's just filled with emotional overload. All, the whole episode it's just this heightened sense of emotion that so many people are feeling and the confusion around those feelings. Two in particular storylines. One is the storyline of Ted. Ted is feeling emotionally overloaded. So if you're not familiar with the story, Ted is the head coach, right? And he's the head coach of this uh, football team, never coached before. But at this point in the story, we learn that he's having some anxiety. He's having some uh, he's dealing with a divorce that's just getting finalized. And in episode eight, Ted's trying to figure out how he feels about himself, given that he has just been through kind of a major panic attack. He had another panic attack. He met somebody, had what appears to be a one-night stand. He's never done that before. And he's trying to make sense of it all. What is he feeling? What shouldn't he be feeling, right? His emotional bucket is full. And he's not quite sure how to process it. What is the actual thing that I'm feeling 
with all of these bodily responses. You see it on his face, right? And, and, and the interesting thing is like, you, you, we pick up this story and he doesn't, he's been on like a bus ride for five hours and he doesn't say a word, right? He's just super quiet. And then he's super distracted in the office. He doesn't know what he's doing. And meanwhile, alongside this, there's another story of emotional load going on. And that's Roy Kent. We talked about Roy Kent a few weeks ago. Roy is an older player, kind of one of the greatest in the games, but he's kind of towards the end of his career. He's definitely not emotionally in tune with himself, if you know the character, doesn't want to talk about this, wants to, but, but he is starting to have feelings for another character in the show called Keely. Her name is Keely. And they actually kissed the other night. And then as soon as they kissed, he walked away. They were like outside her hotel room and walked away. And like, she's left like, what happened? Like, I know I'm a good kisser. Why did it end there, right? That's what she's thinking. And you learn through this episode that Roy, on the opposite, has had all kinds of these one-night stands, and they just lead to a lot of pain, and they lead to a lot, and he wants to do things right. But Keely doesn't know that, so she thinks she's messed something up. She's filled with emotion, right? So she's frustrated, so she goes and connects and hooks up with her ex-boyfriend, Jamie. Roy hates Jamie, so he's got all these emotions about Jamie, and now he doesn't know what to do. And he's at a loss with all his emotions, right? So it's just this big emotion pie. And everybody's trying to figure out what they feel. Now, if they had the Bible in me, <laughs> right, we all experience those moments, right? And, and Scripture actually speaks a lot to our emotions and speaks a lot to us about emotions. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible that like, could probably just be re retitled emotions. Here they are. It's called the Psalms. Right, and the Psalms are all, and songs are usually emotional, right? Songs are usually filled with pain or joy, right? Dave Matthews has a song where there's a lyric that says, funny the way it is, how like the worst moment of someone's life can become your favorite song, right? Like they're filled with emotion. That's kind of what the Psalms is. And, and a couple of things about the Psalms is the Psalms don't hide the negative emotions. Like there's something about our Western triumphantalistic way of being that wants to hide our negative emotions because they make us feel weak. Yet the Psalms, and even in the life of Jesus, like we don't see that. So Psalm 42.5 and Psalm 42.9 are, are just great examples of it. Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Like what, what would that feeling be? Right? We might use the word depression and, and maybe the word disappointment. Why am I so disappointed? Right? It's not as artistic or poetic language as why so downcast, oh my soul, right? But that's really describing that emotion. Psalm 42.9 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? Like, what's the feeling here? There's a feeling of abandonment, a feeling that my beliefs have let me down. How did I get in this spot? You could translate it into one of any things you've ever gone through in your life that you didn't write the script for. You didn't write the script for your life to, to turn out the way it is. And you're standing there going, this isn't what it's supposed to be. And somebody told me that God would make sure this didn't happen in my life. And now it's happening. So what's going on? And there's that feeling of abandonment. There's another like, beautiful passage that really shows us in that Psalm 77, verses 1 through 6. And in the message translation, it says, I yell out to my God. 
I yell with all my might. I yell at the top of my lungs, and God listens. Like, what's that emotion? What's that feeling? Actually, probably anger, right? It's no hidden. Psalm goes on and says, I found myself in trouble and went looking for my Lord. My life was an open wound that wouldn't heal. Like, what is that describing? I feel like that's describing, like, lostness. I went trying to find this God that I was told was going to be with me and isn't with me anymore. And everywhere I turn, it's just raw and it hurts. The psalm goes on and says, my friends, my friends come to me and say, hey, everything's going to be all right. Oh, how many of y'all want to punch somebody when they say that to you in the midst of your pain? That is not helpful, okay? So we are not peacemakers that do that to people. We do not discount people's pain by saying it's going to be all right. Because the truth is, it might not be, right? It might not be. Well, my friends come and tell me everything's going to turn. I don't believe a word they say. That's broken trust. That's pessimism, right? Finishes up with, I remember God, and I shake my head, and I bow my head, and I wring my hands. That, to me, is disgust. Just disgust. I'm awake all night, not a wink of sleep. I can't even say what's bothering me. You might describe that as, I'm feeling anxious. There's anxiety that's overwhelming me. And I think that we have the Psalms that give us all these emotions. Because I think that emotions and feelings are essential to navigating life. Like we have to have the language to navigate life. And we get into trouble when we don't have the right language to navigate life. So I think that we have, you can use whatever word you want. We have evolved, we have been created. I think there's a combination of both, right? I don't think they're at odds with each other. But the reality is we as human beings need our feelings, we need those emotions to navigate the experiences of life. And Psalm 139 puts it this way, for it was you who formed me, you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. And sometimes this passage gets used, but I, I, for lots of superficial things, I just don't know that this passage is about the false self, stuff that stays here when we move on. <laughs> I think that this passage is about our inward parts, not like my intestines, but those things that if you think you're writing from a space of antiquity that you didn't know anything about, right? It's the way you're created, you're formed with all your emotional dispositions, the way in which you experience and see the world. It's a part of who we are and they're necessary. And so here's what I don't want us to miss. As we're talking about emotions, as we're navigating all of this, that emotions and feelings, right, they form the rich tapestry of human existence. They form this tapestry in our lives. Now, what is a tapestry? Some of you know this very well. Some of you don't. I was just like, okay, what is a tapestry? Because I have this, I, I had this idea of a tapestry of this, this like this just woven kind of thing together. But really, tapestry is interesting. According to Wikipedia, and we all know we can trust Wikipedia, okay? So I don't want to hear it. Wikipedia is a great resource. But a tapestry is a form of textile art, right? And it's traditionally woven by hand on a loom. And here's what I found fascinating was normally it's used to create images rather than patterns. Bob's shaking his head at me. Bob knows more about textiles than I'll ever know, right? Think about it. It's used to form images rather than patterns. 
Now, if I could be a good rabbi, I could talk about we're formed in the image of God. And that the emotions that we have, right, they're those materials that are being woven together. Wikipedia also says that tapestries are fairly fragile, very difficult to make, and they're usually hung on a wall because they're so fragile, right? And essentially, it's the weaving together of the different colors of wool or cotton or linen to create the beautiful image. And so my thought is, well, maybe our emotions and our feelings are these different wools and cottons and colorful things that are being blended together through the process of weaving to make us these beautiful humans with all the feels. And the reason why our emotions are so important, our feelings are so important, because we are going to have a multitude of experiences in life that we're not going to sure know what to do with, and we're going to have experiences where we're not even sure which way we're supposed to go. Like, we know we could celebrate or we know we could mourn, but we don't know which one to do. And we have to have the ability to process those things. Ecclesiastes 3, very, very well-known passage. I mentioned it in an earlier uh, edition of this series, right? Ecclesiastes 3 says there's an opportune time to do things, a right time for everything on earth. Now, sometimes we do the right thing at the wrong time, and sometimes we do the wrong thing at the right time, and it all works out, right? But there's a, a need and a discernment, and there's an emotion that we feel in these moments where we're faced with a time to cry or a time to laugh. There's an emotion there. And we have to identify the right feeling and know, well, why, what is this tear that's rolling down my cheek? What am I feeling? Is it joy? Is it pain? Is it loss? Is it frustration? Is it anger? There's a right time to lament and a right time to cheer. There's a right time to make love and a right time to abstain, a right time to embrace and another to part. There's a right time to search and another to count your losses, a right time to hold on and another to let go, a right time to rip out and another to mend. This is my favorite, a right time to shut up, which is generally about 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, and another to speak up. There's a right time to love and a right time to hate. And so I think all of our emotions, the ones that are hard to navigate, that we're not sure why, all those emotions, all those feelings, they're woven together and they form something beautiful called your life. And there's not another tapestry like it. And so there's no reason to be ashamed of it because you are the beloved of God. All of it. The times where your emotions you know, blind you and, and your feelings blind you into decisions that you go, what was I thinking? That's part of the beauty. That's part of the story. And that is beloved of God as well. And so in our everyday normal lives, we have to imagine that this is what's happening, right? There's this tapestry. There's a weaving going on. And so embracing and understanding our emotions, right, is the weaving process. And my understanding of the weaving process is this doesn't go fast. And sometimes, sometimes it gets wrong and you've got to unweave something and then you've got to weave it back in. And again, I don't know anything about weaving. I'm just trying my best here. <laughs> but that's just what I understand. Now, here's what I want to like, really blow your minds with. <laughs> I'm going to end. No, I'm just kidding. That would really freak you out. I'd be like, oh my gosh, what's going on? No. Here's the deal. You are the weaver, not God. God is the weaving. 
I'm going to say that again. You are the weaver. God is the weaving. God is the, that, 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 that thing that happens when we pause and discern, what am I experiencing? What am I feeling? And we do it rightly, and it becomes part of the story. See, that's God. We oftentimes want God to be the potter. I get that imagery. We oftentimes want this idea of a being that's just crafting and shaping and molding our lives, and then we turn out the way we're supposed to be. And I understand those metaphors, and I think there's beauty in that, but I think there's something deeper that God is the potting, <laughs> the shaping itself that's taking place around us, that in which we live and move and have our being, right? But the truth is, you're making choices. I'm making choices that are shaping, that are weaving the story. And I can choose. I can choose to participate in a weaving process that believes there's something beautiful at the end, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to those purposes, right? I can believe that, and that can help my weaving process, or I cannot. But it's the weaving that I think is the divine working through us and in us. The prayer, the mindfulness. And when we embrace our emotions, when we rightly identify them as feelings, when we work through this, when we submit to the weaving process, so to speak, that leads to spiritual vitality. A huge part of spiritual emptiness is not knowing what to do with our spirits. <laughs> not knowing what to do with that part of us that we don't know what to do with or where to turn. <laughs> and spiritual vitality is this process of learning to form those emotions into feelings rightly that are in alignment with what we know about God and this, this reality in which we exist in that is love, that is joy and peace and patience. The belief that all things can work together, that does not mean that all things are produced by God but that they can be woven in. And so prayer and mindfulness, right? Those things can help us connect with the visceral messengers in our body, right? Like there are things that make me nervous. Believe it or not, standing in front of you doesn't really make me nervous. I have a pretty good idea of how bad I am at this, so it doesn't bother me. That's, that's your fault for coming, right? It's your fault for tuning in. Unless you're a guest, you knew what you were getting into. Not my problem, right? But like legitimately, if I go into a new space and I don't know people and I'm in the middle of that group, I have all those bodily emotions that a lot of people would have speaking in front of people. And I have to rightly discern those things. That's a visceral message from my body. And I have to discern like, what is it? Is it that I'm not enough? Because that's what those emotions tell me. Those emotions tell me that I'm a fraud, that I don't belong, right? I'm a, I'm a textbook example of that, right? I'm a textbook example of, you know, imposter syndrome. And that's how I interpret those emotions. Not just like, well, just not, I'm just not super gifted at small talk or whatever it might be. Or, but I have to rightly not move to those spaces, right? And so what spiritual vitality does, and, and when we come into a space of emotional health, we can learn to do things like bring our hands to the part of the body that's talking to us. Our hearts are racing. Our minds are racing. Our stomach's filled with butterflies. And we can like bring to our existence beyond our physical world 
what's happening inside of us physically. And it's just, I can stop. It's like, we can unrestrict the muscles. You know, I've been having a pain in my hip. I don't know what you thought I was going to say, but I said hip. And uh, for whatever reason, I just can't get rid of it. So I've been going to a chiropractor, I've been doing all stuff, and, and like, he'll, he'll always start working on us. He's like, uh, let go there, let go. You know, because everything's real tight. And then there's that moment of like, I don't even know that I'm tense there. And then he'll point it out, and I have to like consciously, oh yeah, I was. I was holding all that in, right? So there's something about those messages. And when that happens, we can then ask ourselves, and we can ask God, what are our emotions trying to tell us in this moment? And how can they be a useful signal? What can they be telling me about me? And then I can move to understanding that emotion, to naming it as a feeling. And then I can start working through that. Okay, this is the feeling that I'm feeling. And why? And I can start, but, but here's, here's the thing. That movement from, okay, I've got the emotional response to what is the feeling, that's tricky because most of us have very, we'll call it low emotional intelligence, or we could say we have a very small feelings vocabulary. Brene Brown um, has a, her most recent book and work, and she actually put it out as a documentary, I think, uh, is called Atlas of the Heart. And in Atlas of the Heart, she explores 87 feelings. 87. And in the research that she did with thousands of people, this is what she found out. And I'm quoting, so don't get mad at me. She said, most of us are only able to identify three emotions, happy, sad, and pissed off. <laughs> like when we're feeling it, those three, that's what we got, happy, sad, and pissed off. And you're laughing because it's true. Right? You're laughing because in the heat of that bodily, physical response, you're going to label it as one of three things, and it's usually pissed off. <laughs> That's what happens. And so there's this vast chasm between what we're feeling and what we're able to express within ourselves and to the outside world, and that produces this like massive amount of tension inside of us. And so I just want to say that understanding your emotion, given that each of us have maybe three or four words for them, it should be a team sport right? We need people around us. So therapists and counselors are great coaches, right? Great coaches in helping us walk through what are we actually feeling? Are we really feeling anger or are we feeling fear? Are we really feeling fear or are we feeling doubt? Are we really feeling doubt or are we feeling disappointment? Are we feeling disappointment or are we feeling fear, <laughs> right? And so we need people in our lives and close friends make up a great team, a group of teammates that can just be on the field together now, this brings us back to Ted Lasso in episode eight, because that's exactly what happens, right? Ted's all in a tizzy, he doesn't know how to deal with these emotions, and you see it all over his face. He's walking off the team bus. They've been on this ride for five hours. Coach Beard says to him, coach, what's wrong? And he's like, nothing. He's like, what are you talking about nothing? We just were on a bus ride for five hours. He didn't say one word. That breaks a record by five hours. <laughs> And he says, okay, okay. And, 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 and he says, okay, okay, okay. He says, all right, I'm going to tell you something, but I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to joke around about it. I don't want any winks and nods later. I'm just going to tell you. Agree? Coach Beard, yes, I agree, I agree. He says, last night, I, um, I slept with Rebecca's friend, Sassy. Okay. There's a moment of silence. 
Coach Bayard looks at him. Do you want to talk about it? He says, I absolutely do right now. <laughs> and so the scene immediately shifts into the office and, and it moves to Teddy's explaining what happened. He's unpacking his emotions and he's just talking about it and he doesn't know what to do. And he's in the office with Coach Beard. He's in the office with uh, Nate, another coach, and with Higgins. And he's talking through this and he's talking about all these feelings that he has. He feels shame. He feels embarrassment. He feels confusion. Right? This isn't a part of his life. He doesn't want to be judgmental to the people that it is a part of their life, but it's not a part of my life, and all this is going on. And so these three friends, they just begin to walk with him, and they just kind of talk him through this situation. They ask him questions that pierce in, and they're trying to help him navigate the feeling that matches the experience. And as they're talking, Nate, who's this kind of quirky, he was like the kit man, he's now an assistant coach, he just like is overwhelmed by this moment, and he's like, I must say, this is just lovely. <laughs> Ever since I was little, I always used to dream about sitting around with a bunch of mates and talking about the complex dynamics and relationships. And they just kind of look at each other, right? And then they just kind of go back in, and Ted's walking through his emotions, and they kind of come to this really good place together. And through like a really quirky like statement, they just kind of help him see, okay, you got to give yourself a little bit of slack, right? And they, they talk him through. And now he's kind of taken aback, Ted, at the end of this, like, wow. He's like, you all stuck the landing on that. Like, this was amazing. Like, I tell you what, I need to get you all some jackets. And, and on the back of these satin jackets, we're going to put Ted Lasso's personal dilemma squad. <laughs> And they're like, oh, no, no, that doesn't work. And Coach Beard kind of grunts in disgust and trying to think of another name. And, and Ted goes, yeah, that's a clunky name. There's got to be something better here. I know, I know. Ted says, what about EQ Warriors? And Beard doesn't agree with that. And Beard says, the Knights of Support. And Higgins doesn't like that one. The camera pans over to Higgins, and he's like, uh, that sounds like a brand of jockstrap. No, we're not going to go with that one. And then Higgins is like, um, the Proud Boys? And some of you are like, don't know whether to laugh at that or not. You could. The funny thing is, as soon as he says that, Nate throws up. Because uh, Nate's nursing a hangover from a different part of the storyline. And he throws up in this bucket, his head's in the bucket. And Nate goes, in that moment, he says, what about the Diamond Dogs? That's it! Nate the Great strikes again. That's it, the Diamond Dogs. That's what it is, exclaims Ted. And they all just kind of begin to howl, right? In that and so the Diamond Dogs are born. And it's this group of people, these four, that they get together to talk through their emotions. Later on in that episode, Roy comes in to Ted for some advice about the situation with Keeley. And Ted assembles the Diamond Dogs. And they all come in howling. And Roy is not happy about it. He just doesn't want it. But at the end of the day, they really help him walk through his dilemma. And so a theme in season one of this story is built on the importance of these, these, these guys coming together to talk through their feelings, talk through what's got them riled up, what they aren't sure, to support one another when they need advice. And of course, throughout the rest of the story, Roy has a complete disdain for this group. <laughs> Anytime they try to convene and he's around, he walks out, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But in the season, the series finale, excuse me, end of the story early in that episode Roy comes in he wants to talk to Ted and he's angry and he's trying to he's trying to figure out how to know if a girl likes him or not 
This is like a grown man. He's like, how do you know? And so Ted immediately tries to get the diamond dogs in. And Roy just walks out screaming, no, 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 no. And he just leaves, right? Well, later in that episode, Nate walks in. And if you're familiar with this story, Nate's gone through this process of redemption. And he's back on the team. They hadn't all been together for a long time. So they're all sitting there. And they're like, oh, this is the kind of original diamond dogs. Plus Trent Krim, who's a reporter who's been following the team. And they're sitting in the office. And they're kind of just, it's kind of weird for them all to be back together. And after some silence, Roy is in the room. And he says, a diamond dog and like all their faces they're like what's going on they're amazed they don't know what's going on they stand up they start like looking around the room for hidden cameras giving him a hard time but Roy isn't messing around like he's really at the end and he needs some advice so they all start howling and they can't believe it Roy's a diamond dog now and this is what Roy says to the group he says this past year I busted my butt trying to change he didn't say butt (laughs) but apparently I haven't done anything because I'm still me and Ted kind of looks at him confused he says oh wait did you want to become someone else and Roy says yeah someone better and then he says can people change there's some silence on that one and then Trent, the reporter who's been with him, who, who walked through in, in a really beautiful storyline of helping Colin come to terms with talking to the team about his sexual orientation, he says this. He says, um, I don't think we change per se so much as we just learn to accept who we've always been. So his perspective is based on one way of understanding change. And then after a minute, Nate speaks up. And Nate says, oh, I definitely think and if you know his story, he says they can. Sometimes for the worse, and sometimes for the better. And everybody in the room kind of smiles at him. And then Roy still, just in a lot of pain, he just kind of grunts. And he says, not me. I'm still the same idiot I've always been. And Ted speaks up and he says, oh, wait a second. I agree to disagree, big guy. Hold on. I mean, come on, man. You just piped up out of nowhere and finally asked to become a diamond dog that's pretty big change if you ask me am i right and they all kind of nod and start agreeing and then coach beard says this he says change isn't about trying to be perfect he says perfection sucks perfection is boring and ted jumps in he's like well except shawshank (laughs) talking about shawshank redemption the movie he says that wasn't boring coach beard Yes, I mean, they're perfect movies, Back to the Future, Jaws, and then everybody starts piping in, right? Like a total distraction. Higgins jumps in. I would think that Trent's hair is perfect. It's definitely not boring, and he did have a beautiful head of hair, I'm not going to lie, but not at all boring, Ted says. So there's like this, this conversation happening, and Coach Beard is just getting frustrated, trying to bring the conversation back to what he was saying, right? Trying to get them back to the point, and he says, Yes, yes, yes. There are perfect works of art. Perfection is all around us, everywhere we look. The mighty redwoods. But I was talking about perfection in people. And then they all are like, oh, right, 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 right. They're catching up to the conversation. And then Higgins, who's kind of the Gandalf of the whole series, right? He just says this. He says, human beings are never going to be perfect, Roy. The best we can do is to keep asking for help and accepting it when you can. 
And if you help, if you keep on doing that, you'll always be moving towards better. So the scene then ends with Roy giving this quiet, like, bark. Like, he's in. He's a diamond dog. And so I want to encourage you in your own life to create your own diamond dogs that don't expect you to be perfect, but do make you better. Because the last thing you need is an accountability partner. I know you don't hear pastors say that often. But that's nowhere in, in Jesus to have somebody who holds you accountable to always being right. I, can, I know where that road will lead you. And it will lead you to a dark place of never feeling like you are good enough, like you are loved. It's one of the worst ideas in the history of Christianity, accountability partners. What we need are people who love us, who don't expect us to be perfect, but make us better for being in the room. That's what we need. Because that's the ground of being with God. That's who God is. So we need people to mirror back that same in our lives. And you need to be that mirror to somebody. Why is that? Because when we identify and when we understand our emotions, when we have people helping us do that, it keeps us moving towards better. And better is good enough. The Bible word for better is sanctification, if you want a really fancy word for it. And it's just an ongoing process. And in that process, we become better parents, and we become better spouses, and we become better co-workers and better, better friends. And we do that by identifying our feelings and letting them guide us, trusting that God is the weaving process. We might get it wrong sometimes. We're going to get it right sometimes. And we let them guide us rather than letting them blind us and hold us back from emotional and social and spiritual and physical So we're going to have communion. We're going to finish up here as we do this. What is it that God's inviting you into? These next few minutes are really an opportunity for us to just pause and reflect on what we've experienced, what we've heard, what struck your heart. And as we receive communion today, it's just a reminder, if you're a guest this morning, this is for everyone. This isn't our table. This is God's table. This is a reminder of the incredible and powerful reality of love as expressed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's a mystery, all of it is. But it holds us and sustains us in ways we can't quite comprehend. So you're invited to experience that in the bread and in the juice, which are just reminders of the body of Christ that was broken as a demonstration of love and the blood of Christ that was shed and the demonstration of love in the face of violence and exclusion. And the only way to respond to violence and exclusion is not more violence or more exclusion, but love. And so as we do that, what is it God's inviting you? Maybe God's inviting you to grow your emotional EQ by expanding your vocabulary to start thinking through, like, what is it that I'm actually feeling here a little bit? Maybe there's this experience, maybe it's, it's to watch or read or engage with Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown and these 87 emotions. Just, like, spend a season of your life, kind of, oh, here's, and, and it's really brilliant the way they group them, They're, they group the emotions that are kind of cousins together. And maybe it's to assemble your group of diamond dogs. Maybe you know who they are, but you haven't been together in a while. Maybe you're just kind of going through some fields and you just need to call them together and you need to process it out loud and talk through it. Maybe that's through your invitation. I hope that these next few moments provide you an opportunity to commit to whatever that is that you're being invited into. So I invite you to stand if you're able to. If you are with someone who is less mobile than you, 
Would you please serve them? There are trays at every table. There are tables in the back for those in the bleachers and here up front. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. After these songs, I'll come with our blessing and a really fun way to end our whole series today. So don't go in.